Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Before we dive into our study of another church in Revelation chapter 2, I just wanted to make a couple comments for context. This study is an informal Bible study, and we're actually talking around a meal or right after a meal, so there's a lot of background noise, and I have to admit that the meal probably slows me up a little bit uh, with a full belly trying to communicate, so it's a little bit different than a preaching format or an interview format, but I hope you enjoy the content anyway. So uh, with that said, just if you hear this kind of noise and background and and so forth, uh, that's what's going on. Thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy it. So today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2 and begin a little series on uh, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. We introduced it last time with a look at chapter 1, which was necessary because each of the churches in Jesus' address to them refers back to part of his vision in chapter 1. And he also identifies some of the symbolism in chapter 1, like the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's the last part of chapter 1. So now he's going to address the seven churches. Who is the angel that he addresses to the angel? We talked a little bit about that. Some people think it's a literal spiritual being, uh, angel. And that's one of the reasons for that is because throughout the book of Revelation, wherever the word angel is used, which the Greek word is angelos, which means messenger, wherever that's used in the book of Revelation, it seems to refer to a spiritual being. Some people, however, think that it's addressing the pastor or the leader of the church as the messenger and just would translate it messenger. And an argument against that that some people use is that church has always had a multiple um, of leaders, plurality of leaders. So, so that, where does that leave us? It leaves us not knowing exactly who he's addressing it to, in my opinion, but it's not really crucial to the meaning of his message. So whoever the angel is, He's addressing it to the church in Ephesus. And if you were to look at a map of Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, which you probably heard has just lost 25,000 people in an earthquake and counting, that's where this took place. I think that was in eastern Turkey, but these churches are in western Turkey, and they kind of form a, a circle. So he's kind of taking a circular route as he addresses these churches. You'll notice as you go, we go through the churches too that the language, some of it seems to refer to the early chapters of Genesis and, and also some of the symbolism in the latter chapters of Revelation. So from beginning to end of the Bible and it kind of ties everything together so that what was lost in Adam is uh, restored in Christ. Another question people have when they look at these seven churches is whether these Nobody much questions that they were literal churches at the time, that they were really seven churches. But does, is there any meaning or that would go beyond that? Some people would say that they represent seven kinds of churches. So it's timeless. So at any given time in history, these churches each represent a profile of certain churches somewhere. Uh, that could be. There are certain things 
true of every church that would be true today of churches even and probably through history some people take a view that each of these seven churches represents a period of history human history so that this church Ephesus would represent like the maybe the early church maybe first second century I don't know how far they would draw that first second century and then going on down the line they look at each church and see characteristics that match a certain period of history and so some people believe for example that we're in the last church Laodicean where that represents the last days but the problem with that view is it's a little bit subject quite a bit subjective because you have to look at human history and interpret the events and then you have to interpret them with a view to comparing them to what's said to the churches if the Laodicean church for example is today's church well that was a church that was complacent you remember I mentioned it in the message and that's true of some churches today but not true of others so it kind of becomes uh, uh, subjective and I don't I've never favored that view very much it's kind of like uh, before I was a Christian I was interested in astrology you know and as and if somebody asked me what I was I'd say oh, I'm a Gemini and they say oh yeah 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 you do this and this and this and this and this you see, they tend to read into it what they what they want to. And if I had played with them and told them I was a, a Taurus or something, they'd say, oh, yeah, I see that. you know. So you kind of get what you're looking for, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Same way of interpreting the churches according to periods of history, in my opinion, is that the same thing can happen. We look at a period of history, and we look at what's said to the church, and we tend to see that in that period of history because that's what we're looking for. So I don't prefer that interpretation. I think it's good enough to say that Jesus was talking to seven churches at the time that John lived <clears throat> through John. He was speaking these messages to them, and they do apply in some ways to churches everywhere at all times and individuals everywhere at all times. So that's the value of them to us. In the book of Revelation, remember we said that chapter 1 verse 19 was a key verse because in the vision, Jesus said that he was going to show them the things which he says to write down the things which you have seen that would be the vision of chapter one the things which are that would be in the present that would be chapters two and three these seven churches and the things which will take place after this that would be the future from chapter four to the end of the book of revelation where the church is not mentioned so there's a simple outline of the book of revelation now we're in the part called the things which are, and that would be the seven churches. And the first church is Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, was a prominent church. It was, uh, sub Paul wrote to the church there. Of course, he, he lived there as well. Um, he knew the city well. <clears throat> and uh, John was closely associated with Ephesus as well. But anyway, this is sometimes called the loveless church, as we'll see. Let's see, how much do I want to read here? Let's, let's just start and see, go a few verses. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. There's the reference to chapter 1 and the vision there. Um, the last verse of chapter 1 talks about the seven stars and the lampstands, the seven stars of the angels or messengers and the golden lampstands represent the church so it's referring to Jesus who 
evidently is among the churches, is sovereignly in the churches, they're in his right hand, so he's, he's a power of position and authority. And it's reminding us of that aspect of Jesus. And then he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Now there's a pattern also that is usually followed in these letters to the churches. It starts out saying it's to the angel, and then there's some description of the Christ and his vision from chapter 1. And then there's usually a commendation, something good said about them like I just read, except for the church of Laodicea, they don't receive a condemnation. And then there's usually a complaint or a rebuke, which is true of all the churches except for Smyrna and Philadelphia later on. He doesn't rebuke them. And then he gives some specific exhortation or counsel to them, which we'll read next. And then there's a promise at the end of, to each of the churches that if they're overcomers, those who overcome will receive a certain reward that he promises. So that's kind of the pattern that we'll see. The address to the angel, the description of Christ, the commendation, the complaint, the exhortation, and then the promise. And every letter follows that pattern with the exception of a couple churches that don't get a commendation or complaint. So this church has lost its first love, he's going to say. You know, the I don't know, you remember Neil Diamond? He's still around, isn't he? But he, he huh? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> no, we used to listen to the song, you know, you don't bring me flowers anymore. Right? You don't bring me flowers anymore. Uh, love has faded in that relationship, and he was bemoaning that in his song. I guess. I don't know the rest of the words. Can I sing it a little bit? <laughs> uh, I don't think you'd want that. But he's, he's facing the reality that love can fade. There's ro usually a robust, energetic, romantic love, and, and, and that fades away after a while. You see two teenagers madly in love with each other, and then the next day they're madly in love with somebody else. <laughs> it can change that that quickly with them and, and fickle, but it also uh, in their fickleness. But it also is true of you know adults who have maturity and and get married. There's always the initial romantic attraction and the excitement of marriage, and um, and so that flame starts to diminish and uh, and fade sometimes. And and marriage becomes a little bit less romantic and sometimes can become a chore. And um, Love is not said or expressed as much as it used to be. So how does a church lose its first love? This church, perhaps, it was working very hard, but maybe they were working too hard because he commends them for their hard work. And um, they were evidently doing a lot of good deeds. They talks about their labor and their patience. The idea of patience is persevering under pressure. But they didn't put up with those among them who were evil. So as a church, they were doing a lot of good things. But I wonder if the fact that they had to confront the evil false apostles in their midst, if that got their focus off of Christ and made church more of a, an argument to be won instead of a relationship to be had. We don't know exactly why. But um, God knows everything. 
and Jesus knows everything, and he's able to know their works and the things that they have done. And he's now going to commend them for it, and then he's going to call them out for losing their first love in a little while. Um, you know, 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment begins at the house of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's judging the house of God, his church, on the various things. So they had good works. They didn't put up with those who were evil and called themselves apostles, but they are not. And they're liars, he says in verse 2. We don't know much about this group, who they were. But on the other hand, Paul warned the church at Ephesus when he departed from them for the last time, if you remember in Acts chapter 20. And as he said goodbye to the elders, he knew he wouldn't see them again. And this is what he said to the Ephesian elders, part of verse uh, Acts 20, verse 29 and 30. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up seeking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So just as Paul predicted, false apostles, wolves among the sheep, did come away to draw disciples after themselves. Was Paul making a generic prediction that would be true of any church, or did he know something prophetically that would happen specifically to the Ephesian church? I don't know. I think, though, it was such a commonplace thing that he could have made a generic promise and it would have come true with almost any church. But maybe Paul, when he was there in Ephesus, saw the seeds of this um, kind of sprouting among certain people. Maybe, he, maybe they were there already, and he knew that when he left, they would, it would reach full bloom, and they would just start calling themselves apostles and lying. But anyway, the church is commended for standing up to them, and because he says you cannot bear evil. And they continue forward, verse 3, and persevere and um, have patience. And they keep laboring for his namesake and haven't become weary. So the Ephesian Christians, they keep on keeping on with patience against pressure going forward uh, as a church. And they continue to labor for my name's sake, but they don't continue to love his name as much as they should. That's what he's going to call them out for. And you have not become weary. So what we have is a picture of a church that's active, that's working, that's busy, that's persevering. They're trying to do what's right by confronting evil among them. And they're working hard for the Lord. But is that enough for a church to work hard, to call out evil? Well, in verse 4, Jesus has a complaint. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Those are words you never want to hear from Jesus, that he has something against us, right? That you have left your first love. You have left your first love. And I don't think he's talking about love for one another. I think he's talking about love for him. In the midst of being so busy working for me, you've left your first love. And that's something that's, I think, easy to do when we get busy, when we get working, when we confront problems in the church like they were doing. 
The word left here kind of has the idea of being abandoned, uh, to give, give something up. They've abandoned your first love. So they're working hard, but without love, what is that work worth? You remember what 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says, that you, know, you can move mountains, you can preach eloquently, but without love, you're like clanging cymbals, clanging gongs, noisy cymbals, whatever, uh, of not much use to anybody or anything. So Jesus is complaining that they've left their first love. They've abandoned their first love. I think, um, you know, one of the conflicts that many of us face, men and women, but I know I did as a father, was you, you feel an obligation to work hard to provide for your family. But in working hard, you feel like you're neglecting your family. There's that constant tension. Um, You've you got to be away. You've got to work. You've got to do what you need to do to provide for the needs of your family. But yet you feel guilty about not spending time with your wife or children. And there's that, that constant tension. Um, this church evidently got carried away with the laboring part and the working part and not spending enough time with the Lord himself and making him a priority in that relationship. It all, again reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> when Jesus came to visit them, Martha's in a tizzy trying to get things ready and get the dinner cooked and served and clean, and, and Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Martha's complaining, Lord, tell her to get up and help me. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, Martha, you're worried about many things. Mary, your sister, has chosen the better thing. She's chosen the better part. So what does Jesus want? Does he want our labor or our love? Ultimately, he wants both, right? But he wants first our love, because labor without love is empty. And love without labor is inconsistent. So he wants our love first. And so he says, you've abandoned or left your first love. And he kind of puts it in a third person sense, almost like you've left your first love. But what he's really saying is you've left your love for me. So now he goes to the exhortation part to give him counsel. And that's in verses five through six. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from, your, from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's telling them, if you want some R's here for alliteration, he's telling them, remember, repent, redo, or be removed. How about that for alliteration? I'll say it again. Remember, repent, Redo or be removed. Redo means come back to your, your first love. So, for remember from where you have fallen. Now, he's not talking about them losing their salvation, of course. He wants them to think about what they've abandoned and, not, and neglected. They've fallen from something. They're not falling from, they're not, uh, their salvation is not being taken away. They didn't lose their salvation. They're just not where they were before. They don't express their genuine, enthusiastic love for Jesus that they once had. So what is it he asked them to do? He says, repent. Now repent, 
and my understanding means to change your mind. It comes from two words, after and thought or mind, afterthought, or to think later in the sense of um, think later and change your mind. I don't think it means to turn from sin because of what he says next. He says, and do the first works. So he separates the inner change from the outer change. The inner change is repent. The outer change is do the first works. Go back to what you did at first. And what they did at first, I imagine, was love the Lord through, maybe he's referring to their worship, their songs, their prayers, and not their, not their building of a church building or other good works, but just things that directly affected the relationship to the Lord, their first works, that would express their first love. And his threat to them is that if they don't, he'll come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So if they don't change their mind and start doing things they used to do in their relationship with the Lord, he's going to remove the lampstand from his place. Now, you remember the lampstands um, were the churches themselves. And so what's he mean by that? It could be, since a lampstand gives light, he could be saying that you as a church will lose your testimony, lose your light. Or it could be that it would be the end of the church in some way. Um, Pliny the Elder, one of the early church fathers, called Ephesus the light of Asia. And maybe Jesus knew that. Uh, the city was nicknamed that and was playing on that here. We don't know for sure. But he wants them to repent or else he will remove their lampstand from its place. Either they'll lose their position of importance as, or their witness as a church or Maybe even lose the church, extinguish the church. But he again gives them a backhand uh, complaint, uh, compliment again, I guess. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the Nicolaitans may be part of these evildoers and false apostles that he just mentioned above. Uh, we don't know. And we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans, who they were or what they did. There might be a clue in the name Nicolaitan, because the word literally means, that's come from word, two words, nikao uh, means to conquer, and uh, and then you see the word laet, you get the English word laity. <clears throat> so it, it comes from two words, conquer people. So it could be that they were domineering leaders, uh, bossy, controlling leaders, which reminds me of uh, diatrophies in Third John. Third John, remember, Diatrophies wanted the preeminence in the church. He wanted to control everything and everybody. And um, John tells him to stand up against them. Well, the Nicolaitans perhaps were the, that kind of people that they wanted to control others and dominate them. And uh, they didn't like them. Jesus commends them because he says, I don't like them either. He used the word hate. Now, here's the promise. If they were to do that, if they, if they were to change their mind and start doing what they did in the beginning of their relationship with him, here's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> now, of course, he's talking about there not just the physical act of hearing, but perception. He who is perceptive, <coughs> let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Okay? Jesus is speaking to the churches, but he's speaking through the Spirit, and this refers to the Trinity, I think, because you have the Spirit and Christ. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, too. And then he goes, that's the plural. But then he goes to the singular, to him who overcomes. So here's a message to anyone in the church. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, where do we see the tree of life before? In tree of life was in the garden, in, in uh, Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, and then we see it again in Revelation, chapter 22, the very end of the book, Bible. So you see how this kind of ties the Bible together. And he will, the promise is that who overcomes, now what does it mean to overcome? We need to pause there and talk about it. Who are the overcomers? There's different views there. Some people believe that the overcomers are all believers because of 1 John chapter 5. I think it's verse 4, which, which says, um, whoever believes in Jesus Christ has overcome the world and the devil. And so an overcomer in 1 John is, is a believer. And so they transfer that meaning to Revelation and say an overcomer in Revelation is anyone who is a believer. That's one view that people have. Some people, another view is that an overcomer is someone who does not lose his salvation. You and I don't believe people can lose their salvation, so we would reject that view outright. But there's another view that says that the overcomer are those who are faithful and endure in good works, and they are re receive a reward. So one view says they're all believers, and the reward spoken of is just getting into heaven, where the tree of life is. The view I prefer, uh, however, is that an overcomer is someone who has overcome circumstances and trials and therefore is given a special promise in the kingdom. Okay? And the reason I believe that is because if it's talking about all believers overcoming some trial to get into heaven, what does that do to the gospel? You see, it kind of adds works and performance to the gospel. And if everybody gets the same reward, then it's not really a reward, is it? So it doesn't make a lot of sense if everybody gets the same reward. It doesn't make it a reward. And works are really prominent in these two letters. That's really the focus is on what they do. But, uh, and, and we can't make works a condition for entering into the, the kingdom of God. And then he doesn't address all believers in verse 70. He, he's saying this to all the churches, but he's, now this is what all the churches hear, but to him, to the individual, who overcomes. So it's not talking about the experience of everybody in all the churches, but the experience of the person who overcomes. <clears throat> so having said that then, uh, if you understand what I'm saying, is the overcomers then are believers who overcome trials and are faithful, not all believers. So they get special rewards in the kingdom of God. Now we know that rewards differ in the kingdom of God. We know that. There are some who will uh, I think all believers will reign in some sense with Christ, but there are some who will reign over 10 cities or five cities and have a, and, and have a more prominent position at Jesus' right hand. Um, so there, there are a lot of rewards spoken of in the New Testament, and not everyone will see, receive the same rewards. So what is the reward promise here? He says, to him who overcomes, I'll give the, to eat from the tree of life. Now he doesn't say, I'll give the tree of life. 
because in Revelation 22, the tree of life is near the river of life, and it seems to be available to everybody, at least visible to everybody. And in Revelation 22, I'll just read what it says there. Um, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on the either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. <clears throat> Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So what does he say about the tree of life in Revelation 22? Well, first of all, it's there in the New Jerusalem. It flows, it's near the river of water of life that flows from the throne of God. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. I don't know exactly how. It sounds like herbal medicine to me, I don't know. There's some healing effect to the leaves, but he doesn't mention eating the leaves, so we don't know exactly how that's administered. But, and he doesn't actually talk about, he says there's fruit on the tree in Revelation 22, but he doesn't say anything about eating that fruit. Now that's interesting to me. I don't know if other commentators, I've read anybody else say this, I'm sure somebody has, but he doesn't say anything about eating the fruit of the tree. He just says there's a tree and it's got fruit. However, in chapter two, he says, those who overcome may eat of the fruit, which tells me that not everybody in the kingdom of God will be eating the fruit. That's my conclusion. It, I just deduce that from the fact that there's a tree, there's fruit, nothing's mentioned about them eating it in Genesis 1 or, I mean, in the early chapters of Genesis or in Revelation 22, but in chapter 2, those who are faithful can eat from that tree. So it seems to be that that's the reward. And I don't know exactly what the benefit of eating from that tree is. They certainly makes them more closely associated with the tree and then they, and in Revelation 22, it says they can enter through the gates of the city. I think that implies a reward there also because the gates of the city when, were the place where somebody who was victorious would enter through the gates of the city. Others would take side entrances. And if you lost a battle, you didn't come marching through the front gate. You came in another way. But it implies entering through the gates implies a, a victorious entry into a city. So... Anyway, that's kind of kind of where I land on, on that promise, is that uh, in some ways, there'll be a more intimate connection with the tree of life and therefore with the giver of life, Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna suggest as an advance of looking at the other rewards in the other churches, that every one of the rewards seems to have something to do with a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. Okay, so just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the churches in the future. Well, so what? How can we, the important point that Jesus wants them to do is to renew their first love. How do we renew our first love? You know, it's something that can be lost or abandoned, as he says, pretty quickly. If you think about Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, the gospel that was so fervently preached and practiced there in these churches that were planted within two generations had faded away, pretty much. Today, Turkey's probably one of the least evangelized countries, least Christian country in the world. 
In fact, one of our missionaries that came up through our church, decide, he did his research and he found the, the country with the least amount of Christians in it. I think it was one-fourth of one percent. And that's, he said, that's where we're going to go. And so they went and they spent several terms in Turkey. And uh, I don't think they had a lot of fruit because Turkey is still very hardened against God. So what the point is, is that where the church began and flourished and sprouted with a first love for Jesus Christ quickly cooled, and we'd say it even fossilized today. So first love can be lost quickly if we don't pay attention to it and nurture it. Well, how do we do that? Well, he tells them to remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. Maybe that's good advice for us, to go back to the the point of departure and to think about how things were before they radically cooled off and we left our first love. Be reminded of that. How do you be reminded of that? I don't know. Get out your old wedding album. Take a look at it. (laughs) Look at the smiles on your face. Look at your honeymoon pictures. (laughs) Not too many of them. (laughs) Look at your honeymoon pictures. Remind yourselves how much you were in love, perhaps. If you kept a journal, read your journals. Um, I do that, and I'm always amazed at uh, at what I find there. And and I would write about how I love Karen and love my children in my journals. It reminds me there. It helps me remember what it was like. And remembering, try to find the delight again. And, you know, every relationship takes time. You can't have a close relationship without time. That, that includes our relationship with God as well as our relationship with any human. It just takes time to have a deeper relationship, more intimate relationship. So be sure to make time for that. Second thing, after you remember, repent. Repent of misplaced love. Maybe our love is cool because our priorities have changed in life. When you're newly wed or newly in love, you all your focus is on the other person. But after, for example, you get married, the grind of life starts to make you think about other things, about making a living, making more money, getting another house. Maybe you get caught up in a hobby. Uh, maybe you're devoting more time to friends than you are your mate. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 about those who would be his disciples. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus won't tolerate any place but number one in our lives, even closer than our wife or husband. How about that? Even closer than our son or daughter. And that goes for every relationship. No relationship can supplant Jesus Christ as the focus of our devotion. But oftentimes, you know, we can be faithful in church, but still drift in our love away from the Lord. Because maybe like the Ephesians, we're so busy doing the work of the Lord, laboring, dealing with problems, meeting the budget, planning, building phase two, uh, or even a good thing, evangelism project, Maybe we're so busy doing these things, we just forget what we did at first, which was just get together and worship and talk and about him and pray and sing about him. Maybe we need to spend more time doing that. Maybe busyness has taken over. Think about a teacher who loves children. She wants to devote her life to children and 
showing them love and acceptance. So she becomes an elementary teacher. And before long, administration is asking her to fill out this form and that form and go to this meeting and that meeting. The children are having problems and the parents are meeting with her. And it doesn't seem to be fun anymore. She's, her love for children has kind of faded. Or think about someone who says, I'm going to be a policeman. I really want to serve my community. I really want to help people. And so he dives into the job and he's enthusiastic and he loves his <coughs> job. He loves the people. And then all of a sudden, something happens in another part of the country and suddenly people are spitting on him and throwing rocks at him. And administration is accusing him of this or that and internal affairs is hounding him. And everybody's watching his every move and making him wear video cameras and everything. He says, this isn't what I signed up for. And he loses his love, his original love for the people that he wanted to serve. It can easily happen in any occupation, in any relationship. So what do we do? We need to repent or change our mind about what our priorities are. What are our priorities? Is it a job? Is it a hobby? Is it another relationship? Or is it the Lord? And then finally, redo. Remember, repent, redo the important things. Mary and Martha. Martha just needed to redo the important things. She needed to just put down the spatula and sit down at Jesus' feet with Mary. Jesus could create a meal right there if, if he needed to. He didn't need Martha's help. So she just needed to rethink things and redo things and spend time with the Lord, be devoted to him, give him first place. So I speak as a husband that, you know, <clears throat> being a husband is hard work because a lot of your time is focused on providing for your family. You feel responsible. You feel like you're the protector. You got to provide. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm a male chauvinist in that respect. <laughs> I think it, the man should be the chief provider for the family if possible, and that's usually, oftentimes the case. Nothing wrong. <coughs> nothing wrong with women working and providing as well. But um, I've always felt it for myself that I should be the provider of the family and be responsible. Make sure the bills are paid. Um, but that's often, that can often distract from the relationship. And um, that's, that's where we have to be careful as men and women. So, guess what Tuesday is? Ooh. Yeah, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Yeah. What's going to be behind those tokens of love? Is it going to be really love or is it just going to be tradition? an obligation, <laughs> something you have to do, or is it really going to be an expression of love? Depends on what she says. Depends on what she says, that's right. Well, one more thing, the reward. What's the reward? If we, if we return to Jesus as our first love, well, we get a closer fellowship with him in some way. Whatever, whatever it means to eat from the tree of life, it's better than just looking at the tree of life. You get to eat from it. I take it that it's just in some symbolic way is a closer relationship to the Lord, closer relationship to the one who is life, who called himself life, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That would be our reward. Love the Lord like we did at first, to renew that love, to make him our first priority, and he'll give us a closer relationship with him. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, 
visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.